From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll bring you the latest update on the fight over redistricting in Wisconsin. Then we'll go over what will be on your primary ballot for February 20th. So a lot of people, a lot of voters will only see the mayoral candidates on their ballot since that's the only citywide office and the other ones are for specific districts. We'll visit the Groman Museum to learn about its latest exhibit, Patterns of Meaning. There's a grandeur to it all that I think steel and the steel industry encompasses this scale that's just beyond anything that I was ever exposed to. But there's also, with all these patterns, you can feel the human touch. Plus, learn about the history of Lake Ivanhoe. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. The results are in. Last week, the redistricting consultants hired by the Wisconsin Supreme Court told the courts that two of the plans submitted to the court are gerrymandered along partisan lines. The consultants said the four remaining plans could be improved, but declined to draw their own maps unless the court requests they create a new map. There's a lot to unpack with redistricting here in Wisconsin, which is why WUWM has been doing a series of conversations all about redistricting. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explain this latest update and answer questions from our community. The report from consultants was due last week. It came down. Uh, What did they say? No huge surprises. They conclude that, you know, most of these plans are basically the same when it comes to population equality, similar degrees of compactness. They all comply with the contiguity and um, civil rights law requirements. Um, I should say the legislature's submission is a little bit of an outlier here for reasons we've talked about. It's basically the same as the old map, just with those small contiguity issues fixed. Aside from the legislature's plan, which does split a great deal of wards and municipalities, the other plans are broadly similar along those lines. As we've talked about, the plan from the conservative law firm Will splits the fewest municipalities and counties, although it does split more wards. Some of the other plans split fewer or no wards, and there's a legal debate about if that matters or not. And then the really big difference between the plans is the partisan impact There's different ways you can measure this. The consultants explore some of those, but the one they put the most stock in, and I think this makes sense, is what they call, kind of a fancy phrase, majoritarian concordance, which just means how likely is a map to give a legislative majority to the party that receives an electoral majority? And to measure this, they look at a bunch of statewide elections from 2016 through 2022 and see how successful each of the maps for the Assembly and the Senate were at converting either party's electoral majority into a legislative majority. And what they find is that the plan submitted by the legislature and by will always convert Republican majorities into a Republican majority in the legislature. And they almost never translate a Democratic statewide electoral majority into a majority of legislative seats, the one exception being Tammy Baldwin's 11-point 2018 Senate victory. The other four plans, the ones submitted by Democrats or Democratic-aligned groups, 
create maps that usually translate a majority of support for either party into a majority of the legislature for that party. And so for that reason, the consultants conclude that you can call the will plan and the legislature's plan partisan gerrymanders, but that the other four maps would create a pretty equal playing field where if either Republicans or Democrats won a majority of the state, they would be likely to take a majority of the state legislature. That being said, they conclude that probably there's a small remaining benefit to Republicans. So like in a truly 50-50 election, most of the time, I think we would expect Republicans to win a narrow majority in like a dead even statewide scenario. But these maps come pretty close to neutrality. Sure. It, it, to me, that does sound like what I would call a fair map if Republicans win a majority, they get a majority. If, if uh, Democrats win a majority, they get a majority. How have the parties so far responded to, to what the consultants have said? The Democratic-leaning consultants are very pleased with that measure. <laughs> sure. um, they certainly find that definition of fairness intuitive. Um, the Republican response that I've seen has been irate. You know, it is true that if you simply draw maps in Wisconsin using the criteria that are explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, most of the maps that you would draw sort of at random, being compact, contiguous, trying to keep counties, towns, and wards together, most of those maps would have somewhat of a Republican advantage built into them. It is not an accident that these four Democratic-aligned maps are much better for Democrats than a map drawn without considering partisan impact at all would have been. And so I think to some Republicans, that seems unfair for the court to explicitly consider the partisan impact, even if the goal is to create what Democrats would call a level playing field. The consultants left open the possibility they could create a new map if the Supreme Court requests that they do that. How likely is that? I did think this was kind of funny. So, uh, you know, at the end of this report where the consultants are basically lying out how these plans are, are in fact constitutional and vary in these ways that are kind of judgment calls, they conclude by saying, well, you know, if you want us to improve on these plans, we'd be happy to do that. They are hired to do this. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at their willingness. And uh, I think their point is that there are some kind of uh, technical aspects of this, like the number of wards that are split or the success of the plans at keeping tribal nations within a single district, which is seen as desirable for, you know, keeping a community of interest together. And their point is that they could make some small tweaks that probably actually wouldn't change the partisan bottom line very much, but might achieve some of these other good government ends. And so they sort of encourage the court to consider enlisting their help to do that. You know, as somebody who gets really into thinking about maps. It doesn't surprise me that they spent a month thinking very deeply about Wisconsin's political geography and then are like, oh, we'd love to try our hand at this. But uh, they're not suggesting that they should draw an entirely new map. They're suggesting small tweaks to the existing ones. So one of the things people in our community um, have been concerned about is this idea of partisanship involved in redistricting. Uh, we talked about this the last time we spoke. Most states who have an independent redistricting commission got that commission through a direct referendum, which we don't have in Wisconsin. What would it take to get that ability to pass binding referendum 
in Wisconsin. It would take getting the legislature to agree to put such a proposal on the ballot. The legislature can send things to referendum in Wisconsin. And so a legislature could do that. This has been such a difficult redistricting cycle. I think you couldn't find anyone who would suggest that it's gone well. And if you look at the history of redistricting cycles in Wisconsin, they've rarely involved the parties coming together to reach a compromise. I don't know. Maybe there's a chance that if there's a new legislature elected under more competitive maps, there would be more of an appetite for creating some kind of independent institution in the state that had formal legal authority to resolve what has been a consistent gridlock ever since the 1960s in Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting question that we've received a few times in different ways. People are curious just about, you know, why do we care about redistricting? Uh, Why do we need maps that they might consider more fair? And it really gets to the point of why are district maps important to democracy? Yeah, I think that's an important question. People who feel that one party is better than the other have varying feelings about this because if you believe that Republicans are better, then suddenly you're less worried about fair maps. I have friends in Illinois who are Democrats and are not particularly worried about having fair maps in that state because they enjoy having permanent Democratic majorities there. But if you support the opposite party, you feel otherwise. Obviously, Democrats in Wisconsin and my experience living in Illinois was that Republicans there were very enthusiastic about the idea of nonpartisan redistricting. But, you know, other people really care about the idea of competitiveness. They think that you don't receive very good representation unless you have politicians who are worried about losing and preferably losing a general election rather than a primary because when a primary is the only competitive election that happens, it's lower turnout and it tends to be more extreme turnout. So the political fringes have more influence in those kinds of situations. I think I fall into that last camp, the the competitiveness. So what is next in this case? Well, that's an interesting question because we have this March 15th deadline we've all been hearing about from the Wisconsin Election Commission. The legislature still has the legal authority to pass a new map. And if they can get the governor to sign it, that will still be the map. Now, we talked about how they tried with a modified version of Governor Evers' map, which he vetoed. In a statement I saw him give, Governor Evers said, I'm vetoing this because it's not my map. They've changed some parts of it. I'll only sign my map. If I was a Republican and I had to pick from the four Democratic-aligned plans that are before the Supreme Court, I would choose Governor Evers' plan. It is a little bit better for Republicans among those. I believe it pairs fewer Republicans together in the same district, and it probably gives them the most advantage of any of those plans in a statewide election. It's not a huge difference, but it's there. And so I suppose it's possible that the legislature could see if Governor Evers meant that. They could try passing his map straight up to see if he would sign it. The incentive for the governor would be that a map passed by the legislature and signed into law, it would be much harder for any court, state or federal to review that in the future. Well, we will see what happens. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect once again. Thank you. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. 
If you have a question about redistricting in Wisconsin, let us know by filling out our election survey at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM as we start our coverage on local elections. Johnson will join us again next week, and you can head to wuwm.com to find more of our coverage on this issue. We all know there's a big election coming up this November, but first we have local elections for a lot of city and county offices. All 15 seats on the Milwaukee Common Council and all 18 seats on the Milwaukee County Board are up for election on April 2nd. So are top leadership positions like Milwaukee Mayor, City Attorney, and Milwaukee County Executive. Some of those races have more than two candidates, which means there will be a primary election in just a couple of weeks on February 20th. WUWM is putting together a voter guide for Milwaukeeans, and our reporter Emily Files has been leading that work. She's here to tell us what's on the Milwaukee primary ballot on February 20th. Hey, Emily, thanks for being here. Hi, Audrey. Thanks for having me. So what will Milwaukee voters see on their ballots when they go to vote later this month? So there are only five races that have more than two candidates running, so those are the ones on the primary ballot. It's the Milwaukee mayor's race, three common council seats, and one Milwaukee County board seat. So a lot of people, a lot of voters will only see the mayoral candidates on their ballot since that's the only citywide office and the other ones are for specific districts. So tell me a little bit more about the mayoral race coming up. Yeah, so Cavalier Johnson is running for re-election. He's been in office for two years since winning a special election in 2022. His challengers are Aisha Griffin and David King. Griffin is actually running for three different offices, mayor, county executive, and common council. She's run for office in years past, including for mayor in 2022, and hasn't been elected. David King has also run for various offices, including for lieutenant governor in 2022, but he hasn't been successful. Okay, so moving from mayor to common council, which common council seats are on the primary ballot? So they're districts 5, 7, and 11. All of those races have more than two candidates, so they have to go to primary. District 5 covers part of the far northwest side of Milwaukee. It had a special election last year to fill a vacant seat, and Lamont Westmoreland was elected. He's running for re-election, and he has two challengers. They are Bruce Winter and Stacy Smitter. District 7 covers part of Milwaukee's central city. Khalif Rainey is the current alderman, but he's not running for re-election. And there are four candidates in that race, Jessica Curry, Randy Jones, DeAndre Jackson, and Kenneth Hughes. And finally, District 11, which is Milwaukee's southwest side, is an open race because Mark Borkowski is not seeking re-election. Three people are running, Peter Bergelis, Lee Whiting, and Josh Zepnik. And if you're not sure which district you live in and which of these races you might be voting for, we will have information about that in our voter guide. You can look at the map of the common council districts, or you can just um, search on Milwaukee's city website. They have the common council districts, and you can see, okay, which one do I live in? Yeah, it's a lot to keep track of, so it's good to have that extra tool. 
And for this Common Council race, we did send a short questionnaire to the Common Council candidates, and we published their answers on our website. So voters in districts 5, 7, and 11 can go to wuwm.com to learn more about those options. Right. You can see what the candidates said about why they chose to run for office and what they want to improve in the city and in their district if they're elected. So the top two vote getters from these common council seats will move on to the April ballot. What other races are getting narrowed down in this primary in February? Yes. So voters who live on the far northwest side will vote for their Milwaukee County Board Supervisor. Um, incumbent Deanna Alexander has two challengers, Marty Hagedorn and Brandon Williford. Okay, so to recap, there are five races that Milwaukee voters could see on the primary ballot, depending on where they live. There's Milwaukee Mayor, Common Council Districts 5, 7, and 11, and County Board District 18. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So everyone will vote for mayor, and some people will vote for Common Council and County Board. And then, of course, come April, the ballot will be a lot more crowded. Yeah, that's the big one with all of the common council seats and all of the county board seats up for election. They'll also vote for mayor, county executive, city attorney and more. And that's also when we'll vote for the Milwaukee Public Schools referendum. And if you have any questions about the April election or the races on the ballot, WUWM wants to hear them. We have an election survey on our website, WUWM.com. And that's also where you can find our voter guide with information about how to register to vote, early voting, and about the candidates. So much more to keep track of and to develop. But for now, uh, we appreciate the updates. Thanks for being here, Emily. Thank you. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the community of Lake Ivanhoe and how it served as a safe haven for black families during a time of high racial tension. But first, we'll head to MSOE's Groman Museum to check out its latest exhibit called Patterns of Meaning. It gives old wooden casting patterns from old steel mills a new life through art. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Milwaukee School of Engineering's Groman Museum specializes in merging art and industry, and its latest exhibit fully embodies this principle. Patterns of Meaning, the Art of Industry, features salvaged enormous wooden casting patterns from old steel mills used in the late 1800s and early 1900s. These casting patterns were acquired by Pittsburgh artist and preservationist Corey Bonnet. Bonnet combines these historic artifacts with art, whether it's painting on the castings, using them as sculptures, or as forms to create new pieces in glass, ceramic, and more. To learn more about the exhibit, I met Bonnet at the Groman Museum as he was assembling the final pieces of the show. Originally, my interest in preservation surrounded abandoned buildings and buildings that were in danger of being demolished in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh's a very similar town to Milwaukee, industrial, considered Rust Belt, lots of beautiful buildings that were utilitarian, that produced everything that built the United States. Um, I saw that all those stories were somehow wrapped up in those structures and that each time one of them was demolished, 
those stories were one step away from being lost and forgotten too. So this collection you acquired along with scrap dealer uh, Chip Barletto was a collection of wooden casting patterns from past steel mills in the area. But before we get into the art that we're surrounded by here, can you describe what these wooden casting patterns are for people who aren't familiar, you know, how they were originally made, what their function was? Sure. So uh, the majority of these are from the late 1890s, early 1900s, um, and a foundry pattern is a wooden form that would be used in sand casting steel components. They would take the wooden form and pack it in a box with sand and foundry sand, remove the form, pour the steel in, uh, and then you have the steel part that would then be machined. What's interesting and overwhelming about this whole collection is that when it was originally created for the building of the steel mills in the Ohio, Pennsylvania uh, areas, there was no CAD, there was no CNC machining, uh, you know, no computers, no electricity in many of the mills. All of this was done you know, with hand-drawn designs, passed on to pattern makers who built every single one of these thousands of patterns by hand uh, without a CNC machine. You know, then casting it and again, machining those cast steel parts without the uh, advantage of any technology that we take for granted today. Yeah, the energy and the power you feel walking into these space and being so close to these objects, being able to touch them, you know, you can tell the attention to detail and the craftsmanship that was incorporated into every single one of these pieces. So what's it like for you to work with them, you know, to not just put your hands on these objects, but you've paint on some of them, you've modified some for different art, but it's they've already stood so much testing of time and now they even have more life to them. I think what is remarkable to me is how many of these pieces are already works of art in and of themselves. Probably the pattern makers who originally constructed them never thought of themselves as artists, but it is a very high form craftsmanship. The techniques that they had to use in order to make these complex forms, you know, many times within tiny tolerances so that these pieces could eventually fit together to make the machines that made everything. You mentioned that uh, you know it's there's kind of this overwhelming feeling. There's a grandeur to it all that I think steel and the steel industry encompasses this this scale that's just beyond anything that I was ever exposed to. But there's also with all these patterns, you can feel the human touch. You can immediately sense that these things took hundreds of thousands of man hours to produce. Um, we have 10, 26 foot truckloads of patterns that we removed um, and are stored in my studio and uh, the Energy Innovation Center in Pittsburgh. And, you know, once people find out you use these things, you get offered more. So <laughs> we have a, a, a warehouse at our disposal with three floors, probably, you know, five times the amount of the collection we have. Again, all made by hand. And all of these things are just pieces that need to be put together and assembled to create something you know, far greater than the sum of the parts. You mentioned grandeur, but also I feel like also a sense of grounding. Absolutely. Um, so I used to get apprehensive about starting large projects um, and nervous about the timelines that some things could take. If something was extended too long, when you see what it takes to build a steel mill, which is something I never thought of, and understand that it was people without any of the technology that we you know, take for granted, 
your idea of what's possible starts to expand. It is eye-opening to see what was accomplished 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And here I am, you know, I'm just painting. I'm not trying to build a, uh, the power grid or um, you know, the sewer lines under a city. It just it opens up all these possibilities. You see what humans were capable of when they use the technology at their disposal as a tool. You know, it's the human spirit and human ingenuity that's the driving force, and I believe that's still true today. We need to understand that we control the technology, not the other way around. You mentioned you are painting and using these as a tools for this exhibit. So can you share more about what you do with your artwork and how you elevate these tools of the past with your painting and also some of the artists that you brought in for this exhibit? Well, I think it's copacetic. These patterns elevate my work. You know, when you have something that is so uh, precisely crafted next to a traditional representational oil painting, it adds an element of interest to it immediately. When you pair it with some of the work our other artists are doing, so Mia Tarducci is an abstract painter, kind of wrestling with this idea of industry and how to present it in a fresh way for new audiences. When her work is paired with it, somehow it kind of crosses that time boundary where it's not something brand new and unapproachable. It becomes something familiar, even though in, in some cases it's not um, you know, literally representational of the steel mill. It's more of this feeling, this expression. Looking at this, again, this continuous timeline, you know, steel, I look at it all as a story. Um, the story doesn't have an ending yet. We're still manufacturing. We still need people to work in manufacturing for everything that we do every day. And watching the other artists work with this, like Brian Engel, our glass artist, AJ Collins, our ceramics artist, Nate Lucas, who uh, you know, just an incredible wood artist, how they're carrying the torch forward on these lost art forms where automation is taking over and mass production. Artists are kind of a last refuge for hand-built craftsmanship where you can really take your time and what you're producing and keep those traditions alive. And we're in the perfect home for that, right? Like the Groman Museum is the perfect place to bring all this together. And this is the first museum exhibit that you have for this collection, taking it outside of Pittsburgh. So can you share a bit about your experience and how this partnership came to be and how you feel we're in the stages of you finalizing it, putting this exhibit together? And already it's looking amazing, but everything is blending so well together, even though it's multiple artists in one space. Um, like a lot of things, all these collaborations with the other artists, meeting James at the Groman, they all kind of happen by accident or just organically. The president of the Steel Founders Society of America, Raymond Monroe, had seen my work online and kind of said, hey, have you ever heard of the Groman? One of uh, James's friends, Chris Winters, I believe is his name, as you know, mutual friends on Facebook said, James, you should contact this guy. And, you know, I had never heard of the Groman. I wasn't familiar. There's so many museums in the United States I'm not familiar with. But uh, as soon as I saw it, it was like, I can't believe I didn't know about this. 
and the fact that it's inside a you know, Milwaukee School of Engineering, it's this multi-layer connection that I love. Um, what we have presenting here, there's fine art, there's ceramics, but all of them have industrial applications. Engineers are going to love it because they're going to look at these patterns and try to figure out how the heck did they build these. Mm -hmm. um, and from James visiting our exhibit hall studio in the Energy Innovation Center in Pittsburgh, we're in a gymnasium of a former trade school, to driving up here in a, you know, on the second trip in a 26-foot box truck through the first big winter storm of the year <laughs> oh, no. um, to actually coming across the finish line, it is absolutely amazing. I could not have asked for a better venue or better people to work with. What do you hope that people who come see this exhibit, whether they have a background in engineering or whether they're learning about castings for the first time, what do you hope they take away? I, I really hope that the images inspire. I hope that they can help to unlock an understanding of how essential the work that was done to build all the infrastructure that we take for granted today, how unbelievably difficult our lives would be if we didn't have that as our foundation, and then to be optimistic about the future because we are working on this amazing foundation with all the technological advances at our disposal. Um, I think that when you see what was overcome in the past, just through sheer will, determination, and an outlook of, we're gonna do this to make things better for the future. When you see what they accomplished, and you look at where we sit today at the starting point, I think a lot of the problems seem much more manageable and that there's opportunity for people to solve them. Well, Corey, thank you so much for sharing more and for sharing your work with Milwaukee. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Corey Bonnet is an oil painter, preservationist, and the creator of the exhibit Patterns of Meaning, the Art of Industry. You can see it now at MSOE's Groman Museum in downtown Milwaukee through April 28th. You'll find pictures of the exhibit and more information at wuwm.com. Lake Ivanhoe, about an hour's drive from Milwaukee, has a rich and little-known history. The town acted as a safe place for black families to spend summers during an era when racial tensions and segregation were increasing in Chicago. Peter Baker first visited Lake Ivanhoe on a fishing trip with his grandfather. His family moved to the community soon after in the 1960s. Baker showed WUWM Susan Bentz around the town and shared a bit of its history. This is where we came through and we launched the boat at. Until today, I remember everything about it. I remember exactly which we fit, where we fish and, and pretty much to the spot, but it would be right over there. And, and you gotta understand for a 12 year old kid coming from Chicago, a major adventure. And at 11 years old, my mother would literally bring us down here with our tent and we'd sleep down here all night with a flashlight at 11 years old. And, and I, I got a dog and I turned him into a hunting dog and fishing rods and friends in the community and there was no fighting in the community. 
how could life be better? You know, there wasn't even traffic in the community. Only a few cars when people came home from work. This was a very small community then. So I think for the boys and the girls, you couldn't have found anything better. So where were your parents both from originally? They were from Missouri, basically. Mm -hmm. But with her involvement in the civil rights, when, when I came home and I said, Mom, we were up there and this was a, a black community. Just the thought of a black community, because there's nothing, we didn't hear of anything like this. And so when I came home, I said, Mom, it was an all black community. And she had been fired from the Chicago Board of Education by Mayor Daley. Uh, for leading one of the largest, the largest protests for the double shifting of African Americans or blacks at the school I was going to, Cornell at that time. And she had to drive out to Chicago Heights to teach. They wouldn't, she couldn't work in Chicago anymore. And uh, she hated that drive. She got caught in a snowstorm one day and, and she just was not a person that really loved driving. So I think it was a combination of things. My mother was also, she enjoyed the outdoors. So a combination of all that led her to believe she had to come up and see this place. She said, Ernest, we are going to go up there next weekend. And he got in the car. They had trouble finding it. They finally found Lake Ivanhoe because there was no GPS. <laughs> and uh, literally, they saw for sale signs on houses, and they put the money down that weekend. We went back home the next week. They came up, signed the deal, and the following three weeks from there, I was up here playing every weekend. <laughs> How many families do you remember growing up? Was Lake Havano filled with families? Yes, every home was basically a home of young people then. Uh, there were some elderly people here, maybe the kids had moved off, the stewards and, and Tom Sawyer and them, uh, their kids weren't there, but they still had nephews and nieces or grandchildren would come up. But every house, there were 13 African-Americans at Badger in the year that I was there. I don't know if that was my freshman year because more might have came in the next year. But however it went, it was an average of either between 7 and 10 at Badger. It was a unique experience. We would go into Lake Geneva. By junior and senior year, with ability to drive, we did have friends that we would go and visit sometimes and hang out with, even though everything really basically stayed out here in the community. So when did you start learning about the very beginnings of Lake Ivanhoe? Well, my friend... Judith had um, written that article. So your your childhood friend wrote this she report. Wrote yeah. Right, listening to the elders. So they told her this story. She wrote this report. And one of the teachers told Samuel Gonzalez that he needed to look at it. So he reads it over and he goes, wow, this is interesting. With this being his college thesis, he did it correctly. So he went down and talked to the families they get brought out the pictures and showed him. So when you were a kid, were you aware that your friend had done this report? No, she was in eighth grade when she did the report. Got so it. by that time I was... You were busy with other stuff. Right. When did you make the connection? I really started with it about 98. So here's what happened. I called and told him, could I have the paperwork? And I read it and I said, the story has to be told. From there, People were beginning to be curious about it. Different historical groups would come out and I would talk to them. So was your goal all along, did you have this plaque idea in mind? Is that what you Once wanted? I, found out about, I knew it was historical. Yes. And as soon as I saw, and I don't remember the first historical marker I saw, uh -huh. it could be the one where the train stopped in Lake Geneva, or I could have read something. All I knew is that 
this needed to go. I, I could have got information when I gave the speech at the Historical Museum, but yeah. nobody, you know, that would have been one place that I thought would have said, wow, you know, you need to take this to the Historical Society and, and do something with it. But your experience has been you kept talking to people, telling the story. You ultimately heard from the Historical Society. The past two years, I'm, I'm two guessing years. about. There is now special funding, and the focus is let's make sure that we reflect the rich history black history of Wisconsin. Of the minority history yes, of Wisconsin. Yes, yes, yeah. So they're, they've looked and they've neglected every minority in yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah. And how I long was, has there been an association? 1944, they started the Wisconsin Lakeside Property Owners, and then two years later they changed it to the Lake Ivanhoe Property Owners Association, so that would be 1946. And believe it or not, it's still here. It's amazing, and the fact that we keep this open and, and have Halloween parties for all the children out here, Easter egg hunts for the children out here. Of course, we enjoy it socially. Uh, we have football, you know, Packer Bear game parties, and, and we do special events for, you know, the community. Just, we used to have Lake Ivanhoe Day. We used to have everything going on and, and, and set up volleyball nets and everything else and put in the horseshoe pits. You've made your life here. You're a builder. You've built here in Lake Ivanhoe. Yeah. So you really feel like you're part of bridging that history and you want this community to live on. Continue to grow. I definitely want it to live on because I want to live in this community. <laughs> so for as long as I can, this is, uh, I'm hoping it works out that way. Um, but uh, I love this community. Peter Baker is a Lake Ivanhoe resident. He spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter, Susan Benz, in 2022. If you've driven over the Hone or paid attention to the southern shore of Lake Michigan, you may have noticed a wind turbine over the water. It's the inspiration for a new book for young readers, and we'll tell you about it next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. A picture book brings to life a very special wind turbine in Milwaukee. You've probably seen it before on the southern shore of Lake Michigan, right by the Hone Bridge. Milwaukee author and educator Kate Meyer wrote a book for young readers called Gust. That's her name for the little wind turbine who wants to help his community but doesn't know how. Meyer speaks with WUWM's Lena Tran about the turbine and her book. Take a drive on the Hone Bridge and you can't miss it. The small lone wind turbine on the south end of the bridge right by the lake. When she first moved to Milwaukee five years ago, Katie Meyer noticed it too. And she couldn't get this little wind turbine out of her head. She named him Gust. Gust E. Day. This is what Gust sounds like close up. Kind of like someone's hair is getting brushed over and over. Meyer told me about how her fixation on the wind turbine started and how it became Gust, the book. When I moved to Milwaukee and bought a house in Bayview around 2018, the wind turbine is unavoidable. I mean, I would take my dog for walks by the lake when I went to the farmer's market or beer garden at South Shore, even on my commute to work over the home bridge. 
I just kept seeing the wind turbine. It was everywhere. So for those of you who haven't seen it, though, the wind turbine stands alone. It's not in a wind farm like most wind turbines that I've experienced kind of out in a rural, very large field area. And it is smaller than any wind turbine I've seen previously. Um, In fact, it's less than half the size of most average wind turbines. And it's in the middle of a city, which is very unusual to me, um, and I think unusual for wind turbines, and also right on the shore of Lake Michigan. So it just really stood out to me as part of our Milwaukee skyline. And then no one was talking about it. Uh I was so surprised as someone new to the area. And maybe it's because I came from Washington, D.C., which is a city of memorials and monuments. But it was such a standout feature to me about the Milwaukee area. And I thought it deserved as much attention as, like, our Hone Bridge or our Clock Tower or the Milwaukee Art Museum and all these other great features that I was learning about my new city and also seeing kind of photographed and depicted. And then I myself was new to a city with few friends (laughs) at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID hit almost, well, very soon after when we moved into our new home. So there was like a lot I couldn't do to explore and get to know Milwaukee. Sure. Or meet people. Maybe I can blame COVID isolation for why I characterized and named a wind turbine (laughs) and started talking to it. But fortunately for me, I had one friend in the city who actually just became the new port director at Port Milwaukee at the time that I was thinking about this and researching and writing. And I learned that that wind turbine I'd been seeing stood on Port Milwaukee grounds. So I had one, at least one other person who felt as passionately about this wind turbine as I was beginning to feel, and I just really wanted to tell its story. That's so cool. Well, so you had these questions about this wind turbine, Mm -hmm. which anyone would recognize. Did you just happen to ask your friend, like, oh, do you know about this turbine because it's near the port? Or, like, how did you make that connection? Yeah, I think I was starting to talk about it. I got curious, asked questions. And as I was kind of seeing the wind turbine, I kept thinking about what it might see from this great vantage point over a busy working port. I had never lived in a city that had like an active working port. And so the book was always from the wind turbines perspective in my mind. So I just started researching the wind turbine, asking questions and thinking about what a view it got, what it would see of the city and the port and the Great Lake and what he might think and do standing over it all. As I learned, I was amazed at how much the wind turbine did for the port and for our city. And the people at Port Milwaukee have been so gracious in answering all my questions and championing their little wind turbine. And I am an educator. I'm in education myself. And so I always kind of think about children's literacy. And so that was in the back of my brain. And so I started to research books that already exist and learned that there are very few fictional books or stories about wind turbines and especially for younger children and none that I've been able to find that have a wind turbine as sort of an anthropomorphized character, especially the main character. Uh So I learned a lot researching Gust, and as I learned more, I just really wanted to make it come to life. And also, the timing was right. Mm -hmm. I mean, climate conversations are happening more and more at the table, right, at the dinner table. We're all experiencing, like, the massive and often dangerous impact on our world and changes in our world. So it just felt really urgent and important Um, to share. And I, like I said, I'm in education, so it might not come as a surprise, but I really believe that children are the future of climate justice. And 
that they need to grow up knowing more and doing better than we are. Not that we as adults can opt out. We're not off the hook. I thought Gust could be a child-friendly introduction to wind energy and an entry point for parents and educators to talk to kids about renewable energy sources, Mm -hmm. starting with our very own success story. Absolutely. Can you say more about what you mentioned like Gus was doing so much for the port. What what is the role that this turbine plays in the port of Milwaukee? Yeah. I have learned a lot, but I always want to say I am an author and educator first, not a wind turbine (laughs) or wind energy expert, because sometimes I get questions and I'm like, I'm not actually sure. But I have learned a lot. And some of the things that I've learned, City of Milwaukee's Environmental Collaboration Office or Eco Office and Port Milwaukee installed our wind turbine in 2012. So Gus turned 11 this year. (laughs) That wind turbine is 100 kilowatts and is... 154 feet tall, which is about half the height of most average wind turbines, but it has already far exceeded the initial estimates in clean energy production and savings for our city. So kind of a twofold thing that it does. First, it provides the port's headquarters administration building with over 100% of its electricity needed, Mm -hmm. making it the first Milwaukee City building to be a net zero electric energy user with clean renewable energy. So it's very exciting. That's so cool. (laughs) Not only does it power the port's headquarters building, but it actually produces enough wind energy to sell some back to the city's power grid. And so it can power up to 18 average Wisconsin homes a year, like yours or mine or your listeners. And so it has both an environmental and an economic benefit. And the savings on the city's electric bill um, since the installation has been about 200,000 across the last 10 years. That's amazing. It's huge, right? Yeah. And no, and like people aren't talking about it. So yeah. it also creates revenue for the city each year. It actually creates about $8,000 in revenue per year on average. Mm. Well, um, I love that you created this little superhero for us. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing that I love. You know, it's so recognizable. And he really is this, like, powerhouse little wind turbine. It's very fun to see him come to life with all the other characters on the shoreline, Mm -hmm. whether it's the lighthouse or the bridge. Does thinking that way come naturally to you, like, seeing them as characters? I think so. I think I've always been a book lover and a book reader. I was an elementary educator, still work in um, education. And so I see the world, I think, in a lot of stories, And so as I was thinking about this character, I just sort of started characterizing everything else that it would see. And I know that kids enjoy things that move, things that go, right? So seeing things like trains and boats and trucks would help make it feel more accessible and relevant to kids. And then introduce this character, this idea of a wind turbine and wind energy and how it works as sort of a primer for renewable energy. So all this stuff, all the goings on at the port, all the things, all the goods that go in and out and all the different modes of transportation, is that stuff that you knew about? Or is it like, hmm, I'm curious, I'm going to like hit up my friend and figure out what actually goes on there? I am so embarrassed to say that as a full-grown adult, I had very little idea of what the port does. I had never lived in a city that had a working port. So I had to ask a lot of questions about it. And I also hope that kids will learn a little bit about it. There's some, you know, kind of academic vocabulary like cargo and port that are thrown into the book for kids to experience and learn and get some background knowledge on so that when they're a grown adult, they have more understanding than I did. (laughs) And when you decided that you wanted to make this book 
how did you move from having the character Gust? Gust E. Day is his full name. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to throw something in there for parents yeah. to be able to giggle at, too. <laughs> I'm sure parents appreciate that. But so how do you move from that character to the central like narrative of the book, this problem that he has, which is that mm-hmm. Gust wants to help, but he doesn't know how? Yeah, he feels really stuck being a wind turbine that is literally stuck into the ground and sees everybody else moving around him in this busy port, whether it's people or the other characters. And then sort of the solution is actually a change in Gust himself, realizing that he also has a job to do. And so that's part of what I hope kids and and parents take out of the story or take away from it. There's these ideas of community and belonging and friendship that actually can really resonate with kids around this age, too. That's sweet. You have taught kids with so many books, you know, as a teacher and educator. So I'm sure that you have many favorites and your own ideas about (laughs) what makes a really wonderful book for kids. What did you want to bring to life in your own book? This is your first. Yes, it is my first. I really wanted it to be engaging. I wanted it to be something that kids would be interested in returning back to. I've really loved the stories that I've gotten from families, parents, classrooms, even when they're like, my kid keeps asking to read your book over and over, you know. (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, sorry. But I wanted to be something that really spoke to kids, whether it was sort of the lesson, knowing that um, we all have different jobs to do different skills, identities, perspectives, and that bringing that all together and working together helps our community run, and that even the smallest people, wind turbines, actions can have a really big impact. But I also wanted them to have some curiosity about the world around them and learn new things like uh, the setting of the port. A lot of children don't know what a port is, so this is an entry point for that. Obviously, wind turbine and wind energy and renewable energy. So I wanted them to look at the world differently, seeing these like ships with eyes and the characterized trains, as well as have some questions about the world around them. Mm -hmm. It's such a gift to have a book like this that is getting at all those themes, but it's also like in our backyard and Mm -hmm. all these things that all these kids will definitely recognize. So There's a couple little Milwaukee nods, wink and nod um, (laughs) in the story that definitely Milwaukee readers will recognize. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Katie Meyer, the author of Gust, a book for young readers. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or would like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll examine the election law that allows a candidate to run in multiple races in the same election cycle something that's happening in Milwaukee County's election right now. Plus, we'll learn how UWM's Moonshot for Equity program is going, which aims to boost student success and close equity gaps. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.